Oh, I am so thankful that our understanding and overall acceptance of intrauterine devices has really changed over the last 20 years. My goodness, it's changed over the last two years. For example, uh, progestin IUS, we now know is non-inferior as emergency contraception compared to a copper T. And that just happened very recently. So things really do move very quickly. I trained when an adolescent patient uh, could not be offered an IUD. And as I've said before, I am not old, thank you very much. <laughs> it just wasn't that much in our recent past because the uterus was a no-touch zone, right? I mean, they're an adolescent, they're nullagravid, and we don't want to mess with the uterus. Like somehow we were going to, uh, you know, decrease its, its fertility in a massive way because of the intrauterine device. Now, of course, adolescents, it's absolutely who should get a LARC, whether that's a uh, eternogestrel implant or an intrauterine contraceptive device. So we've learned a lot in this. We've also learned when to apply this in the postpartum patient because this whole issue of doing it immediately after delivery is relatively new. Not all that new, but again, it wasn't something that was historically done just 20 years ago. Interestingly, though, Mexico and some Latin American countries have been doing it for a lot longer than we have here in the States. But in this episode, I want to focus on that very thing because ACOG does support immediate postpartum IUD insertion, even though it can have some issues, which we'll discuss in this episode. But a new publication just came out out of JAMA. This is early versus interval postpartum IUD placement, and it's an RCT. This just came out at the end of March 2023, and we're going to summarize that in this episode. Because if there is issues with immediate postpartum placement, like before they go home from the hospital, then maybe early placement is the catch. And we're going to discuss what we mean and explain that in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The article that's the reference for this episode comes from JAMA. The publication date was March 21st, 2023. The title, as we discussed in the intro, was Early versus Interval Postpartum Intrauterine Device Placement, an RCT. The first author is Sarah Averbach. Before we get started, if you're wondering why this push for early versus interval postpartum IUD placement, I mean, just stick with the routine. It's at six weeks postpartum like we did traditionally. Why do we have to put it in so fast? I mean, just wait till there's six weeks. 
Well, that's great if your patients come back for the six-week appointment. (laughs) But life gets in the way. I mean, they've got a newborn. They've got other career things going on. It's just hard to manage. They could be transportation issues, other children at home. You can find the reason. I mean, that's life. We get that, right? A lot of times we shame patients for not keeping an appointment. But the reality is it's hard to go see a physician or a nurse practitioner or a midwife. It's just hard to keep those appointments when other things are going on. Obviously, we value our health. So things like cancer, things like severe disease, those appointments tend to be kept, but it's very well documented that things that are considered more, quote, elective by the patient, including birth control, they kind of tend to miss that. And that's unfortunate. That's why an ability to catch a patient in the immediate postpartum interval uh, has some value. They're more likely to come back when you're doing a blood pressure check or if you time it with the child's first visit uh, with their pediatrician or their family care uh, physician. Uh, So the earlier that you can catch them, potentially the better to prevent patients from uh, from falling out of the system. That was a whole move with trying to give them a lark before they even leave the hospital. Uh, immediate postpartum larks is something that's approved and supported by the college. This whole increased use and access to intrauterine contraception is the whole focus of a new committee statement from the college. This is committee statement number five, which came out this month from April 2023. That committee statement is increasing access to intrauterine devices and contraceptive implants. Look, I'm very LARC friendly. It's the way to go. There's a lot of health benefits for it. There's less uh, side effects like from the estrogen. Uh, So I'm very LARC friendly friendly and this committee statement from the college is calling for this very thing. Hey guys, let's be more accessible to this. We're calling on third-party payers to try to get these things uh, more available for patients for better access and I'm thankful the college is putting this spotlight on this incredibly effective form of contraception. In this new committee statement, the college states, quote, everyone who desires long-acting reversible contraception should have timely access to contraceptive implants and intrauterine devices. OBGYNs and other reproductive health care clinicians can best serve those who want to delay or avoid pregnancy by adopting evidence-based practices and offering all medically appropriate contraceptive methods. Long-acting reversible contraceptive devices should be easily accessible to all people who want them, including adolescents and those who are nulliparous and after spontaneous or induced abortion and childbirth. Ah, did you all catch that last part, including after childbirth? And of course, that's nothing new, because in a separate committee opinion, which was number 670, back in August 2016, ACOG released their endorsement, or at least their support, of immediate postpartum long-acting reversible contraception, including intrauterine devices. Listen to these statistics. Between 40 to 57% of women report having unprotected intercourse before the routine six-week postpartum visit. Ovulation occurs at a mean of 39 days postpartum in women who are not breastfeeding and can occur as early as 25 days, putting postpartum women at risk for unintended and short interval pregnancies. How's that for fast? Do you see why there's that initial move towards placing this in, whether it's an implant or an intrauterine device before discharge. That makes sense. 
Of course, there's one issue that we're going to talk about in a minute, and no, it's not cost because thankfully there's ways to break down those financial barriers, and I'll give you that website in a minute. Um, but there is one issue here with immediate postpartum placement before they go home from the hospital, and you probably guess what it is, but I'm not telling you what it is just yet. So here's this idea of immediate postpartum placement with only one real contraindication. Immediate postpartum insertion is contraindicated in those women who have peripartum chorioamnionitis, endometritis, or a suspicion of sepsis. So C-section is not a contraindication. It's still a go as long as fever isn't a concern. All right, let's tackle the cost bear. All right, I get that. That's a thing. Okay, let's tackle the cost bear. The first question is, well, how are hospitals supposed to get this? My hospital doesn't have this just lying around in their pharmacy. Some do, and it's getting better. So you have to remember, it depends on where you practice, but there is something that ACOG launched, and it's nationwide. It's called the Postpartum Contraceptive Access Initiative, or the PCAI for short. And it's its own website. That website has educational materials, ways to request a third-party payment. Uh, They can even have uh, video trainings for uh, the labor and delivery staff, postpartum staff. So it is called the Postpartum Contraceptive Access Initiative. And its own uh, website has plenty of info to get a location up and running for immediate postpartum uh, LARC use. Not just for IUDs, it's just LARC in general, so the implant uh, and or intrauterine devices, all right? PCAIinitiative.acog.org. Another helpful resource through ACOG is its website called Medicaid Reimbursement for Postpartum Larks. This is almost every state listed on there. You just click on your state and it tells you whether Medicaid has reimbursement and how you can do that. And you can find that on www.acog.org slash programs slash long-acting reversible contraception or just Google ACOG Medicaid reimbursement for postpartum LARC. Hey, at least we've got those things, right? That's something working for us. There's trying to be this improved access to these LARC methods because it just works so well. But here's the catch for immediate IUD placement. According to the college, the rate of expulsion of these devices is pretty high. But even that number is huge in the range because it has to do with how well it's placed and then how they're surveilled. But nonetheless, the chance of having a complete expulsion with an immediate postpartum IUD placement ranges anywhere from 10% to 27%. So if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if it's 10 to 27% risk of expulsion, why would I even do that? Well, the college has an answer for that. The short answer is it's worth trying, (laughs) all right, because it's better than leaving them unprotected uh, at all. So the college states, although these IUDs do have these rates of expulsion, many women experience barriers to interval LARC placement such that the advantage of immediate placement outweighs the potential disadvantages. And that brings us to this new study. All right, so here's a dilemma, right? Uh, Some women don't come back. Some women get busy and have sex uh, before the six-week appointment. I get that. Everyone's different. Knock yourself out. Intimacy is a huge part of relationships and quality of life. That is true. So if immediate placement has a higher risk of expulsion, up to 27%, and then there's a possibility that they're not going to come back at six weeks, and then sex is somewhere in between that, well, why don't we split the difference and try to do a two-week placement. 
How about that? That's the whole vision. That was a whole design. Uh, and the objective of this study was to measure that. Let's try to get away from postpartum insertion if, that, if that's an issue, if that rate of exposure bothers a patient and bothers a practitioner. Maybe we should do it at two weeks instead of waiting to the six-week mark. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The objective of this study was pretty straightforward, to determine expulsion rates for IUDs that were placed early postpartum compared with those placed at the standard interval of six weeks. Early postpartum was defined as between two to four weeks postpartum compared to the standard placement at either six or eight weeks postpartum. The primary outcome was complete IUD expulsion by six months postpartum. All right, so this is the thing, this is complete expulsion. The thing falls out. The pre-specified non-inferiority margin was six percent. Secondary outcomes were partial IUD expulsions, IUD removal, pelvic infection, patient satisfaction, uterine perf, pregnancy, and IUD use at six months postpartum. In other words, continuation rates. From March 2018 to July 2021, the researchers recruited 404 postpartum participants from four U.S. health systems, a majority of whom had vaginal delivery and were multi-paris. Patients were randomly assigned one-to-one to undergo early IUD placement at two or four weeks postpartum or interval IUD placement between six and eight weeks postpartum. Patients were allowed to pick the kind of device that they desired, and most participants chose the 52 milligram levonorgestrel IUD, or IUS, and most of the remaining participants chose the copper T. Here's what the follow-up looked like. All participants were scheduled for a six-week postpartum visit with their usual clinician, which included the IUD strength check by speculum exam to confirm IUD presence for those that had the early placement group. And there was a strength check that was scheduled for participants who had the interval placement. Then, at six months, all study participants were scheduled to have a bimanual exam, a speculum exam, and a transvaginal ultrasound to see what's going on with the IUD or IUS. We have to define what the researchers called a complete expulsion versus a partial versus malposition because that's the whole focus of this thing. Now, complete expulsion is super easy. Guess what that is? It's complete expulsion. (laughs) It's pretty easy. That was defined as no IUD seen in the uterus on transvaginal ultrasound and either a clinical history consistent with certain expulsion uh, or abdominal or pelvic x-ray images that confirm that the IUD is not there. Okay, so you have a transvaginal ultrasound, the thing's missing, and she says, yep, I saw that pop out. Well, that's a complete expulsion. Uh, Or she's unsure what happened, and you get the x-ray, and it's nowhere in the abdomen. Therefore, it is a complete expulsion. 
partial expulsion was defined as an IUD that was protruding from the external cervical loss on a speculum exam or any part of the IUD below the internal cervical os on transvaginal ultrasound. In other words, a cervical device. Pretty easy. Uterine perf was defined as an IUD visible on radiographic imaging that was not visible within the uterus on ultrasound. Makes sense. And then a malposition was defined as transvaginal ultrasound image showing a low line and or a rotated IUD or any portion of the device that's in the myometrium but without any portion located in the cervix or else it'd be called a partial expulsion, all right? And remember, if it's beyond the uterine serosa, then that's a perforation. So we have complete expulsion, partial expulsion, malposition, and then perforation. Well, let's get right to it. Among the primary analysis, complete expulsion rates were 3 of 149, or a 2% rate, in the early placement group. And there was no expulsions in the 145 patients in the interval placement group. Now, before you go, wait a minute, 2% over 0%, I can do math, that's more in the early placement group. And it is. However, you have to understand statistics and what is really important or what's really significant. You see, that was a between-group difference of two, right? Two percentage points. However, remember what was considered non-inferior. In other words, it had to have a margin, a spread, a coverage of 6%. So that was consistent with early placement being non-inferior to interval placement. In other words, that's all right. I know it sounds bad. That that, that can wig out some people. It's 2% compared to zero, uh, and that is a higher number. But those three means that it's non-inferior. All three of those complete IUD expulsions were actually recognized by the participants at the time of the expulsions. Two participants, which was 67%, chose to have another IUD replaced. Partial expulsions were seen at 9.4% in the early placement group and 7.6% in the interval placement group. That's a between-group difference of 1.8 percentage points. We're going to talk about whether a partial expulsion means less contraceptive efficacy or not in just a minute, but I want to cover first the IUD malposition rates. IUD malposition rates were 8 of the 149 who had early placement. That's 5.4% compared with 0 of the 145 that had the interval placement. That's obviously 0%. That's a between-group difference of, that's easy math, 5.4%. More patients in the early placement group at 82.4% stated that they were satisfied compared to the interval placement rate of around 70.4%. Let's tackle the malposition and partial expulsion and what that means. The short answer is it's not really clear. We actually have an episode on that. You can go back into the archives called the malposition IUD. Do you leave it in? Do you take it out? What do you do? Uh, but the truth is there's a lot of limited data on, on what that actually means clinically. It's unknown whether a partially expelled IUD retains some effectiveness and whether this differs by IUD type, whether it's copper or hormonal. You'd figure they would cause a field effect and it really wouldn't matter as long as the majority of the device is in the cavity. But we just don't have that data. However, there was an intrauterine pregnancy that was diagnosed in one of the participants with a partially expelled copper IUD. So just keep that in mind. We just don't have enough data on what that actually means. That's part of shared decision making. But I want to go over at the end of the episode, what's one way to try to 
at least reduce the risk of having a low placement or a partial expulsion. And that has to do with something done at the time of insertion. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute. All right. That's not in the manuscript. That's not in the article. I'm just offering that as what we do as conservative. uh, And we consider that best practice. All right. To make sure that it's in the right place at time of placement. I mean, you can guess what that is. But all to say, it's unclear from the data whether a partially expelled or a malposition, if that has any decrease in efficacy or not. You have to go back and listen to that other podcast uh, because we go through the data in that episode. Now, we talked about the one pregnancy that was with the partial expulsion with the copper tea, right? Fine. Well, there was also another pregnancy, and in fair balance, the way life works out, it was in the 52 milligram levonorgestrel IUS. That one was malpositioned, but that malposition and the partial expulsion, both of those were diagnosed at the time of pregnancy confirmation, all right? So did it come after the pregnancy? Did it lead to the pregnancy? That's the chicken and the egg issue we don't know. So two pregnancies with IUDs in place, one was in the copper tea, and then just to be fair, there was a pregnancy in the 52 milligram levonorgestrel uh, early placement group, uh, and that was an ectopic pregnancy. There were no perforations documented in either group, whether it was early or interval, so at least that's a good thing. As a last outcome measure, let's talk about pelvic infections because there were three documented cases, all of which happened in the early placement group. One participant reported an asymptomatic chlamydial infection that was treated between IUD placement and the six-month follow-up, but the IUD remained in place as it should, and there was no clinical sequelae noted, all right? So not really that it caused it, it's chlamydia, just that's kind of a one off the side, but it still was documented, of course, as a pelvic infection. A second participant was treated for PID after developing vaginal discharge within weeks of the IUD placement, but the patient was pretty much otherwise asymptomatic, no pelvic pain and no fevers. Uh, So again, a mild case there uh, of PID that we know, of course, has high sensitivity on clinical factors alone, but poor specificity. And then the third participant actually was considered to have postpartum endometritis at the time of IUD placement. And the physician uh, basically felt uncomfortable with the IUD and so then removed it the same day uh, and then gave the patient antibiotics. All right. So take it for what it is. One was chlamydia, again, not caused by the IUD because as far as I know, IUDs don't cause chlamydia, sarcasm. Uh, and then the second was this PID case. And the third one is, you know, they place it and, well, you know what? Actually, I think you've got some postpartum metritis. Uh, take it out and take antibiotics. So that's the infection side. Again, all in the early cohort. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, let's start wrapping this up. So what, what the heck do we do with this? <laughs> well, the short... All right, let's start wrapping this up. Well, what do we do with this info? I mean, what's the clinical take home? Uh, And I think it's very easy. Look, let's offer patients effective contraception. That's the take home. I like immediate postpartum. My hospital doesn't do it. It's a logistical issue. I work at a Catholic health initiative uh, system, a CHI. uh, So it's a contraception and CHI issue. Uh, But when I worked in another county hospital, that's, hey, it's free game. No problem there. Uh, So I do have experience with this, whether it was 
implant-based or IUD-based, uh, I think there's a role there. I'd rather risk a higher rate of expulsion than not doing anything at all. Uh, and then the take-home from this specific study is, look, if you have a fear the patient's not going to come for follow-up, two to three weeks or two to four weeks placement is okay. Yes, there was maybe a 2% risk of expulsion compared to zero for those who waited, uh, but that was non-inferior. That's non-inferiority established. So it's okay. In other words, uh, it, it's, it's definitely an acceptable risk. Here's my take on how to try to avoid partial placements or partial expulsions down the road uh, or malpositions. So in patients that are in the very, very short uh, postpartum interval, it's a great idea to do this under ultrasound guidance. Um, I've done that in our clinic. We have a a very uh, reproductive age patient population. And sometimes one of our uh, PA or nurse practitioner goes, man, that cervix is just weird. And they're experienced. I mean, they're good. They know what they're doing. But they got some strange anatomy or they're just not comfortable or whatever happens. Well, I'll then take over, but we do that under transabdominal ultrasound guidance. Super conservative. I understand that's not standard universal practice. I get that. But there's nothing like seeing that device right into the fundus uh, for proper placement. Obviously, you have to have your own ultrasound available in the office location. We do. And so as I'm at the perineal area, we have our tech uh, looking at the ultrasound. It doesn't take a long time. We don't hog the room. Uh, It is a billable event as a limited or a targeted ultrasound. And the patient is reassured uh, that everything is okay. Now, there was no perforation seen, and that's good. But in the postpartum patient, just something to consider uh, depends on their degree of subinvolution or involution. So just something in from a personal anecdotal experience, I like ultrasound placements with difficult cases. Uh, it just makes me feel better the patient gets to see it. It doesn't erase the need to come back for a string check because expulsions can still happen after it's in there. Uh, but the ability to say, whoa, I know it's in there. I'm going to rest well tonight. Uh, and then that way, if it later expels, you're like, well, we all saw it didn't we? I mean, we knew it was in the right place. And it just restores that confidence both in the procedure uh, and in, in the practitioner. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a new JAMA article covering immediate versus interval IUD slash IUS placement. I'm a big fan of postpartum placement, but if that can happen, then perhaps early, or at least if they come in at the latest, that interval insertion, because larks are definitely to way to go. There's a place for birth control pills uh, and NuvaRing and the other devices, but man, I really do like larks. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Thank you.